Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. You're taught as a wife that if you prevent your husband from going forward on another girl, that is basically like murdering and that is like you condemning them to hell. Because if you're preventing them from going to heaven for living polygamy, you're condemning them to hell and you're going to go to hell too. And so it was always something that I had to contemplate because of course I was against it. Of course I didn't want to live that. Of course I didn't want to have my daily life look anything like the lives I was seeing. Yeah. But there was that whole like, well, I, I want to do what God wants me to do. I, I want to go to heaven. I want to be worthy. I don't want to be dead for hell. Mm-hmm. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions or organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. As always, if you're only listening, you want to see our faces, go to our YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can interact with us. I love seeing your comments and this community that we have built that leaves amazing words of encouragement for our guests who are bravely coming on and telling our, telling their stories is so helpful. Remember, guys, the guests read all of the comments. And it just really means a lot when you're willing to leave a comment for them. And of course, like and subscribe all the things. <laughs> so today's guest, she has had her family members on before. You know and love Amanda Ray. You know and love Val. She's actually Val's sister, Amanda Ray's cousin. She was one of the main characters on the show Escaping Polygamy, which a lot of you are extremely familiar with. It's no longer running, but you can definitely go back and watch those episodes. So we are going to get into her life growing up in the order and it's um also known as the kingston clan it is a mormon breakoff so i got a lot of heat on val's interview that everyone was like this is not mormon active mormons active lds members i see you i know how you feel i used to be one of you but just remember that the word mormon is not monopolized by the mainstream mormon church they are an actual breakoff from the, the actual mainstream Mormon church, when they stopped practicing polygamy, these groups decided, no, this is the way that Joseph Smith wanted, and they continued to practice polygamy and create their own sects. So not to be confused with the FLDS, which is the Warren Jeff sect, this is the order. We're going to get into what all of that means, but I just had to put that little disclaimer out there. <laughs> so thank you so much for joining us. Chanel Snow DeRue. Hello. Hi. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So the order, this is the one that is most known for the incestuous relationships between husband and multiple wives. So we want to get into your specific family dynamic. And we know that your dad, his name is Daniel. We will be referring to him as Daniel throughout this interview. You grew up with him having 14 wives and 163 plus siblings. I think you mentioned you stopped counting around a decade ago. So how many siblings do you think you potentially have at this point? Well, there are a lot of people who say that he has over 200 kids and I wouldn't put it past him. Trying to count myself, I only was able to find, you know, get to 163 or like up to like 168. But that was like a decade ago. Since then, there have been, I'm probably going to guess like nine wives who have continuously been having kids. And I would guess he probably at this point does have more than 200 or maybe like 180, 190. 
somewhere in there. That is a lot of kids. And I'm sure everyone right now is thinking, if you haven't watched our previous videos on the order, how is one man supposed to support all of these kids? They don't. It's so simple. They just don't. Yeah, it's really frustrating. And we're going to get into more of your living situation. But first, how many kids did you have from your mom? So my mom had 12 kids and I'm the second oldest, but her first girl. Okay. Yeah. Val is the oldest, right? Your older brother? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So within your family dynamic, what was it like growing up in a home where you don't see Daniel often or how often did you see Daniel? When did he come around? So when I was younger, Daniel, like younger, younger, then Daniel would come around probably about two times a month, maybe three for the first few years of my life. And then after that, we would see him once or twice a month for several years. And then it he's just started ignoring us even more so. And then so th- there were times that we would go months without seeing him. But that wasn't when I was little. Mm. Actually, when I was little, then uh, I remember at least three of my uncles living with me. And Daniel was always very threatened by another male individual being in the home. So my mom made sure it was always very clear. This is uncle so-and-so. This is This is my brother. This is uncle whoever. And so when I saw Daniel being the only one that would actually stay the night in my mom's room and not very often, then I started to put two and two together before he wanted me to know. Did he not want you to know that he was your dad? Or what do you mean by you You didn't put the pieces together until later? No, I actually figured out that he was our biological father before Val did. I was just observant, I guess, paid more attention. I don't know. I just remember being little and watching TV and seeing that families have a mom and a dad. And so then trying to be like, well, if I have a dad, I know it's not my mom's brother over here. I know it's not this uncle. I know it's not this uncle. It must be Daniel. Okay. So is it a situation that's common within the order where you're not supposed to know who your biological father is? At the time that I was growing up, yes, actually. It was it was very secretive. But in the 80s, then there was a lawsuit and the state had come after the at th- the prophet at that time, which was Daniel and Paul's father. And he had to fork over like a million dollars or something like that for tax fraud or like um, government aid or what it was. But he had to fork over a million dollars. So at that point, when when I was growing up, everything needed to be secret. We don't tell anybody who your dad is. Like the outside world's not supposed to know. And even on the birth certificates, they would either just, well, yeah depending on who it was, they would either leave it blank or put a false name as the father. Mm. And I think a, a big part of it was they were afraid of prosecution. They did like the, the fathers, the husbands, they didn't want anyone to come after them for living polygamy, knowing dang well that it's illegal. Yeah. I think that's a question that people ask often in our comments is how is the state not coming in and doing something about this when polygamy is clearly illegal? Do you have any information on why that might be the case? One, it's hard to get all the paper trails when people are not willing to talk or share the information that they have. And another thing is like, it's just, it's going to be a big messy thing. Everyone, the polygamists, anyone in the order, anyone who's getting prosecuted, they're going to come out and be like, this is a violation of my religious rights. You're just trying to persecute me for my religion. And honestly, a big part of me feels like the government and the authorities who can actually do some just don't want to get their hands dirty. It's too messy. So they just want to push it under the rug and let somebody else deal with it in the future. Yeah, which is extremely unfortunate and not okay. Yeah, I know that my 
we're trying to get them on the show. My cousin's husband, he actually escaped the Warren Jeffs polygamy sect. He said that he had gone to the state and he was trying to protest and and get things to change, but they just didn't really do anything. And everyone's asking why why aren't people stepping in? This is clearly an unsafe situation for the children. They're not growing up in safe conditions. They are being abused in multiple ways. But the government's not doing anything, and it's just really hard to see that, especially when it's such a known occurrence. They know that it's happening. Yeah. And if you know where to look, you can find paper trails where um, individuals in the polygamous groups or even their businesses will donate thousands of dollars to government officials. And I don't know if it's like hush money or if it's just like pocket money or if it's just simply, hey, let's be friends. I know you're going to want to come at me in the future because somebody else is going to want to. Right. A lot of people say, oh, they're bribing the government. They're bribing the government. And it's really hard to figure out what you want to call that money. Right. And it seems like they would have quite a bit of money to bribe the government or whoever, because one of the rules and correct me if I'm wrong all of the kids start working really young, all of the mothers are working, and they have to give their money to their husband, to the head of the household, right? Exactly. So how my my banking statement went is like at the very end of every year, I got a total of my profits for the whole year. And so I could see, hey, I made this amount of money for this year. And then the, my next statement that I got in well, January statement that I actually got in February, then everything was zeroed out. It was like, because everything that I made the year before, they went and they put it in a secret savings, which does happen to be um, my biological father's business account or, you know, his his pot of gold where all of his kids and all of his wives send their money. Mm-hmm. So it's not immediate. It's just like they, after a certain amount of time, they just like wipe the slate clean, take everything that's there and be like, start all over with nothing. That's crazy and just so that people understand you have a specific specific bank that the order runs it's not like your money's in wells fargo and they just wipe it out illegally everything is controlled by the order right yes yes everything is in their 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 banking system you don't have a credit card with them you don't have a debit card with them if you want to spend money outside of their own businesses, you have to have cash and you have to go and get it from their bank and you have to have a valid reason as to why you want the money, even though it's yours. Right. Even though you're entitled to the money that you worked for. And you have to get it approved to even pull it out. Yes. So that's just one of the ways that this group is obviously a high control group, high demand religion. Can you speak to some of the other ways that may be a little bit culty? I mean, there's so much, so much to go into it. There's, they practice prejudice like crazy, not just prejudice against outsiders, not just, um, racist. They're like practice prejudice even within the group. So there are favored families. There are low families. I'm, I'm assuming that growing up in, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, but growing up in the LDS church, you probably dealt with a lot of prejudices and people being very judgmental and, and expecting you to live up to this high standard. And um, if you don't, or if you cuss, or if you watch a rated R movie, mm-hmm. then people will start being like, oh, they're bad. They're a bad example. Don't talk to them. And it's just the the prejudice. And I don't know if it's called bullying. I can't think of the correct word right now, but they're very vocal about it as well. And so they're they're rude and as mo- it's mostly it's the kids being rude, but the parents are the ones telling the kids, this person is bad. This family is bad. Don't talk to them. 
they cuss or they watch rated R shows or they read Harry Potter. <laughs> oh, no, not Harry Potter. Did you read it? No, I didn't read it. But I remember Paul getting up in church and talking about how those books are there. They bring in negative energy and a bad spirit into your home. And the kids are not supposed to be watching or reading Harry Potter. Okay. So for those who aren't familiar with mainstream Mormonism, there are lots and lots of rules. And like you mentioned, the no rated R movies, um, you can't drink coffee, anything with caffeine in it. So no substances at all, um, which seems fairly healthy, right? But they take it to the extreme. Mm -hmm. And there's a whole bunch of rules like the purity culture thing, which is not specific to Mormonism. It's in lots of Christian denominations. And even more so when you go back to the history of the church, like the the roots of it, the main leaders who started it and founded it, there's so much racism and so much misogyny. And honestly, the quotes would just blow your mind. In fact, we did a whole episode, like one of, I think it was like episode five or something on the channel where we brought on someone who has an account called True Mormon Quotes and we brought up actual quotes from the leaders of the past and it's so disgusting. But the reason I bring this up is because what we're talking about today, the order is fundamentalist Mormonism. And as you probably know, anything that is within fundamentalism is like the core, the original beliefs of the church. So even though mainstream Mormonism has tried to move away from the racism and the homophobia and all of that stuff, when we get into the fundamentalist side of things and the religions that said, no, they were doing it right the first time, that's why you get so many extremes. So within the order, we have this isolated community who are basically living in plain sight. They're injected in normal society. They're not on a compound like the FLDS. However, they are still clearly very isolated. And if you're saying that even within the community, you become isolated, I, I just can't imagine how difficult that would be to not be able to, first of all, have real friends outside of the group. But now you're expected to also cut off certain people within the group and not associate with those people. So what was that like for you growing up? It was inter more interesting for us, I feel like, given like my mom's kids, because my mom's family was on the outskirts. Like they were the ones that the majority of the order was prejudiced against. And so we kind of had like one foot in the regular order people and then one foot in the in the Kingston, the most culty part of it. My mom has a big family. My mom has a lot of siblings and the majority of them have left the group. So even as we were little, then we were able to see some of our family members who some of them at the time were still in the group. Like I remember um, one of my uncles and aunts when they finally left the order, they had multiple kids. So it was very, very chill for us to go and hang out with them. And like, we would hear comments from other like half siblings or other people in the order. It would be like, Oh, the Hansons, they're these bad people. That's my mom's main name. And we were like, well, we're Hanson. And then some of, some of them would just kind of be like, Oh crap, I forgot about that. Or I didn't realize. And like, just be like, Oh, I need to shut my prejudiced mouth, mouth for a minute. But, um, I remember one time I was little and my mom's youngest brother was getting married, but he was an outsider at that time. So, we went to his wedding and then in between his wedding and reception, we had to go to Daniel's office so that Daniel could talk to us about how it is very important that we don't associate with outsiders and that we don't have that outside influence in our life. And that the only reason that it's okay that we're going to his wedding and reception today is because weddings and marriage are sacred to the Lord. And 
he is your mom's brother. So this time it's okay. But I, but he needed to make sure that we knew that we weren't allowed to have them in our life and we weren't supposed to associate with them on any other re- occasion mm. for the most part, which we didn't exactly follow, <laughs> but many, many times we did. There were, there were many, many years we didn't actually see almost anybody in my mom's family because of the prejudice and how strict they were with who you can allow in your life, whether or not they're in, in the group. Yeah. When we were younger, for some reason, Paul liked me. Paul liked me, but he didn't like my younger sister, Colleen. Just to clarify, is Paul the leader, the prophet? Yeah. Paul is the leader of the order. He's Daniel's brother. So he's my uncle. He seemed to like me and most of his kids my age were just hanging around each other anyway, but they didn't seem to have an issue with them talking to me at school. I didn't, we didn't have birthday parties or anything like that together. But when my sister Colleen, who's only three years younger than me, she's having birthday parties and she wants to invite Paul's kids and they're not allowed to go because apparently Colleen was a bad example, even though he seemed to like me. Okay. That's just one example, I guess, of the prejudices in the family. Like certain individuals, they'll like some of them and not others, whether they're in the same family or not, whether they're your own kid or not. Yeah. And you mentioned to me off camera about how even within the wives, and you you talked about this a little bit, how some wives are given favoritism and better places to live. And I know we wanted to discuss the living arrangement for your mom. So do you want to talk a little bit about what that was like growing up, where you were, the kind of situation that you were put in by Daniel? Yeah. For a long time of my upbringing, then all of the wives that I went to their houses were like run down old, older houses. But as time went on and families grew, then, and they needed more houses and whatever, then there were certain wives who would get the bigger house or the newer house or the one certain wives who actually could get a remodel in the house. And it was always dependent on his favorite. Sometimes it would be the first wife or the youngest wife or the hottest wife. The favoritism is very, very clear. It's not spoken, but it is very clearly pictured right in front of you. And your mom was number seven in the lineup, right? Yes, my mom was number seven. Okay, so could you describe for us, and I saw the episode where you're walking through this apartment of your mom's and you're trying to get her to leave, get her to get out of this situation, and the camera crew kind of walked through the home and pointed out some of the issues that needed to be fixed that clearly weren't being fixed, and it was creating a safety hazard for your mom and your siblings. So could you kind of talk us through what some of those things were like and and why you were trying to get your mom out of there? Yes, and most of these issues had been going on for years. My mom had been telling Daniel, we need this fixed. This hole is happening. This bathroom no longer works. We have dirt in our water. He didn't seem to care. This, like, Everything that you saw on the show, all of the safety hazards that were on the show, they had been going on for years. And Daniel, he didn't care. He didn't have to care. He wasn't even there. He didn't have to live there. He didn't have to deal with it. Yeah. And this was an apartment complex, right? Yeah. How many bedrooms were in this apartment? Initially, when we moved into the apartment, there were only three bedrooms. Um, so my mom had nine kids in three bedrooms And at that point, that's when we were able to like build into a section that was kind of in between the two apartments. So we were able to take that, that empty section to add to our apartment. 
And so at that point, then we were able to legally add two more legal bedrooms, but two of the other rooms we also used as a bedroom. And I say they're not legal bedrooms because there's no escape route. There's no window. There's just one door in, one door out. Okay. How did you feel growing up in this situation? Did you feel like you should have been in a larger home having seen the other wives' houses and and seen how the other kids were living? Yes. Um, Growing up, there was always that conflict. There was always the conflict of why are we not good enough to have enough space or to be able to go on these trips or to do some of these things that the other wives and children were doing. And we're taught that the lack of appreciation is a major crime. And so we're trying to appreciate all the things that we have and appreciate that we have a roof over our head, that we have clothes on our back and we have food in our bellies. We're trying to appreciate everything that we have. But at the same time, we can see the injustices and it's hard not to question why is this okay, and why why favor one over another when aren't we all supposed to be one family? Yeah, that must have been really frustrating. And we spoke on it a little bit in Val's episode about how he was pulled out of school to take care of the younger siblings. Did you have to do the same thing as well? It was a little bit different for for me. So basically, I was not allowed to go to high school. I was pulled out of school when I was going to be going into my ninth grade and was pushed to do like an online school, which I did never get my GED from because there were some issues there. And I was just like, after all this time and after cheating our way through because we did it as a group. Some of my other half siblings, we would, anyway, I don't necessarily want to go into that, but as a group, all the kids like cheated their way through to get their high school diploma from that online school. But that was one of the excuses that um, Daniel was using as you can still do this at home at your own time, but you could be working all day too. You could be making money. You could be building up the kingdom of God. And at least that way we wouldn't have any outside influence either. We wouldn't have any, any peers of our own age that we were. That were influencing you negatively influencing you about worldly things. Is that kind of. Or distracting us or even distracting us just from, because our number one goal was to find your number one choice and get married, have a bunch of babies and build up the kingdom of God. Okay. So they didn't want any distractions. Friends, they're unnecessary, especially if they're outside friends. But what is necessary is going to work and building up the kingdom of God and helping mom with the kids and with the house. Right. And building up the kingdom of God essentially means just making money for Daniel or the church. Basically, it's about making monies and making babies for the church. Yeah. For the leaders and the church. How old were you when you were first expected to start working? Well, my mom took me to work several times when I was little. And of course, I was expected to expected to help her when I was there. But by the time, like when I was eight, when a lot of kids would be expected to start working, that's when I started babysitting my siblings and being like expected to be more of the mom influence in the household. So I didn't actually start working until I was 13, like officially as a job. But here and there, you know, for the summer months, for the weekends, days after school, it was very known and like, I guess accepted. It was just normal to me that we go to work with mom. We do the custodial work. We sweep the floors. We wash stuff down. We do the filing. You know, we know our ABCs. We know that we can file this in the behind the right letter. So a lot of just stupid 
little things that most adults don't want to do. And if a child's there, they're like, do it for free. And this is when you were under eight years old. Yes, this was when I was little, like younger than that. After being eight years old as well, but pretty much as soon as the time, as soon as the time presented itself, that's when you that's when you start working. Now, once you were expected to become the babysitter for your siblings, is that something that you were excited to do? Because I know, at least in mainstream Mormonism, they really drill it in your head that your only purpose as a woman is to become a wife and a mother and all of that. Although they don't really start training the kids for that until around 12 when they officially start teaching it. But sure? if you're doing this, it, I know, I'm not totally sure. I'm like, you know what? Let me think back <laughs> in the memory bank here. We're singing all the songs. Someone pointed out in the comments that we talk about the, or we sing in primary school, I love to see the temple. I'm going there someday. And I'm like, yeah, but I think as a kid in my brain, I didn't connect the temple with marriage at that point. Yeah. I just, you know, you just see a castle and you're like, I can't wait to go there as a child. But yeah, I'm sure there's subliminal messaging before they actually start teaching you the lessons at 12. But for you, you're already put in that mother role at eight years old, which is so young to be caring for other siblings. How many siblings did you have to babysit when you were that age? Do you remember? When I was eight? Yeah. Let's see. Let me count. Six kids. At that time. And then about four years later, maybe a little bit longer, then another kid came along and another kid came along and another kid came along. But actually, I wouldn't, first of all, I wouldn't call it subliminal messaging. It was very clear. It was very direct. Before we were ever 12 years old, we knew exactly what was expected of us. We knew, I knew when I was like, I want to say like five or six, maybe seven, but like super, super young because they, they teach you pretty much as soon as you are old enough to start listening, they teach you that the most important thing in life is to find your number one choice, marry who you're supposed to marry, have a bunch of babies and build up the kingdom of God. Mm -hmm. So it, it was very direct. It was very direct. There was no question about it. It's not, it wasn't, it wasn't subliminal. They didn't start for a lot of people. They didn't start pushing until they were about 12 years old, like pushing, pushing. But at that point they're, it's not just pushing, hey, this is what you need to do. It's pushing, who are you going to marry? Who do you think you're supposed to marry? Like, it's that. When you're 12. Yes. Just more direct. Yeah. More intense. More obvious. Yes, more intense. I actually didn't really have a problem with raising the babies, like taking care of the kids, being the babysitter at home. Of course, I didn't like cleaning the house all the while. And of course, and we would get in trouble if it wasn't clean when the parents got home. But um, the parental instinct is very, very strong in me. So I was already trying to take care of my younger siblings when I was still just really, really little. So I actually, most of the time until I was a little bit older, I preferred to stay home and watch my siblings. I remember being babysat at some of the other wives' house, several of the other wives' house, and seeing just the way a lot of them treated my siblings and how they treated us. And it was very, very clear that we were not favored. It was very, very clear that it didn't matter that we're supposed to be their kids as siblings or that we're supposed to be their husband's kids. It was the prejudice is, it was very, very evident. I remember watching my siblings being beaten by the other moms. And I just remember thinking even at such a young age that I would never want to send my kids to that kind of babysitter or daycare and that I would way rather be the one at home. So at least I know 
that they're being fed. I know mm-hmm. that their diapers getting changed. I know that they're being taken care of. And I know that they're not getting beaten. Yeah. Wow. You had that parental instinct at such a young age. And it's it's really sweet knowing that you just really wanted to protect your siblings. And I'm happy that they had you to do so. And then you were expected to work at 13 outside of the home. Did you feel that pull of wishing you could have been home with the kids? Or at that point, was Val taking care of the kids? No, at that point, um, Val was also working somewhere else, too. I think it was my our, our younger sisters who were taking care of the kids. I actually was excited to start working, um, knowing that so many of my half-siblings had been working since they were like eight years old, or some of them even a little bit younger. And then I also hearing stories from my mom because my mom grew up at the mine and there were several other order families that were down at the mine and they they had a couple of businesses down there. So there were a lot of girls that were around my mom's age or even younger who were allowed to have a job down there. But for some reason, being, you know, not of the favored family, my mom and her sisters, they were never allowed to have a job down there. So my mom, even being 16 or 17 years old, didn't get to work at the order businesses. So I also grew up with the idea of we would be so lucky to have a job and how, how lucky are we and how privileged are we that we get to start making money and we get to start helping and start working at this young age. And a lot of people don't even don't get to have a job so early. I was more excited to be able to, to have a job feeling like I was coming in late to have a job at 13 years old. Oh, that's so interesting. So your first job was at 13. And then I know you said at 17, you did start working at the mine. So what did that look like? The summer when I was 17, I got my first outside job. I was able to work with one of my aunts who's an outsider. She's never been in in the group. And working with her, then we together, we formed a plan that I was going to go stay with her and my uncle. And I was going to go back to high school for that the senior year, the last year of high school, I would have been able to go to. And by then I had had, I'd worked for Daniel at several different of his businesses and I'd have had, um, and other order businesses. I wouldn't say they were like such bad experiences, but okay. Some of them were really bad experiences. A lot of them, they were very deceitful and I wasn't getting paid what they said I would be getting paid or uh, I don't know, there were a few times that working for one of Daniel's businesses, actually a couple of them, then there would be beef between me and one of the moms. And sometimes it would be over like me being late or me like chatting on messenger while I'm supposed to be working. And so when I was 17, I was working for the outside job. I had decided and I told myself and I told several other people too, that I will never work for the order again. I am done. I'm done with their deceitful, conniving, cheating, skeezy behavior. Like I don't have to have business with them financially. I mean, obviously that wasn't quite true because that's where my money was. Yeah. So just a couple weeks before I was to stop my, my summer job and start school again, then I got an offer from somebody asking if I wanted to work at the mine. Now my grandparents had been living there my whole life. And I had already decided before that that was the only exception of all the order jobs that I ever would go back to working for the order. That was the only exception because to me, the mine was like, that was my second home. That was my grandparents. It was, I just felt safe there. It was very comfortable. It was, so I was really, really excited to go work at the mine and I was promised this certain amount of pay. And after 
I don't know if it was, I think it was like three months when I finally like was taking a look at my statement and I was like doing the math and I was like, you guys lied to me. You lied to me. And before I even went down there, we had several different talks about the pay and talking about how, or with my mom, with the manager, with the HR individual, you know, with myself, it was like, Hey, everything needs to be clear. You need to be honest. And I found that not only were they docking my pay, they were docking some of the hours that I worked. And so for all, for the, all the hours that they removed from my time card, I didn't get anything for at all. But once I found out that I was getting paid less than I was told, then I took it up with HR and I made a little hissy and I was like, you guys lied to me. Yeah. Like I had already decided this is not the behavior that I'm going to tolerate. I, I this is why I stopped working for the order in the first place is because you guys were lying to me about what you're going to pay me. And so the mine being as big of a company as it was, and they actually had a lot of different outsiders working there too, then not, not in the office, they had outsiders working in, in under the ground, but um, then they went ahead and back paid me mm. for, for the, just, just that little bit of the, the amount, the difference, which I really appreciated. It was very, very shocking. They don't do that in the order. They don't, they don't back pay you. And as I mentioned, all the hours that they just simply removed from my time card, I got nothing for it. Well, that's awful. But yeah, so they removed hours. They doctor pay. But all of that money mm-hmm. anyway, isn't that still not technically your I mean, they say it's yours, but then it gets transferred to Daniel. So did you ever actually get to use the money that you were making? Uh, for the most part, no. Any money that I wanted to use, I had to have either my mom call in an approval or Daniel call in an approval. And I just I remember one time having twenty dollars and someone asking me, where did you get $20? That's a lot of money for you to be having. I was like, what are you talking about? It's 20 bucks. And asking me being very, very insistent, like, how did you get this money? Like it was some, some lifeline I was never supposed to have. Mm. Everything had to be approved. And you all, like, you always had to have a reason, a valid reason for it to be approved. So the majority of the time that I was able to spend any money, it was just like anywhere between three and $10. And a lot of that was actually somebody else from the group coming to the office and being like, hey, I need to get this amount of money from Chanel's account. And most of the time it was like, oh, we're going in on a gift. We're going in on a baby shower gift or a bridal shower gift or a wedding gift. Like, you know, so there were a bunch of a group of us. We'd be able to just give in a few dollars or, you know, five, ten. Most most people didn't do any more than three to eight. (laughs) But in general, like the money that I was spending initially was, it was just simply taken off of my card from someone else. Like I wasn't spending it or handing it over myself personally. And when I did finally start spending my, my money by my choice, I remember it being on my younger siblings. Mm -hmm. I remember, you know, just being like, now I can finally take care of them. Now I can make sure they're having Christmas cards. Now I can make sure this little girl is wearing girl clothes instead of boy (laughs) hand-me-downs. Yeah, I was going to ask about that as far as how you're not you specifically, but how your mom is able to actually take care of all of these children, because what's so frustrating is it's obvious that you're expected to work. All the siblings are expected to work. You can't even go to school because you're supposed to be working, but all of your money gets funneled mm-hmm. to the head of the household, which in your case was Daniel. But 
But at the same time, and we we knew this from Val's episode, you aren't able to eat. Like how you're supposed to dumpster dive for your food, even though you're working and working and working. So how how did that work for you from your perspective? Were you given money for food? Did they allocate you certain funds? Did they just give you the food? Well, anything you can get for free is a blessing. And food is not to be wasted, even if it's bad. You know, we were being brought up by people who were brought up after the whole depression and all that. So we were taught that waste not, want not. And we were taught, we were even told that like you can have a bowl, bowl of food in front of you that is not at its at its peak, it might be a little bit old, but having that bowl of food is better than having nothing. And you need to be grateful for what you have. And for for us, for the most part, my mom actually was pretty good about making sure that there was food. We actually did have like our pantry always had, you know, cans or packages or whatever. We always had something. So if we were really hungry, we could go open a can of olives or like warm up a can of beans or things like that, that most kids don't actually want to go for. <laughs> but uh, when we, we moved to, we moved to that apartment that you guys saw on the show. We moved to that when I was eight years old and that actually it's on the farm. So across the street from where we were living, then they had this big area where, um, local stores or businesses would like come and dump their food that was either expired or just to get just about to go expired because it was supposed to go towards the livestock to feed all the pigs. And I don't know if the cows eat it or not, but it was supposed to go towards the livestock. So when they would get their batch, then those of us, cause there were several different order members on that property. Those of us that were on the property were like, yay, they did the run. They came. So like those kids would be like scouring, kind of like little rats scouring, see what, what treats we can get <laughs> out of. We called it the bargain bin for a long time. Mm-hmm. They also did what we call like a milk run and like, cause they had an agreement with like a dairy factory that like some of the stuff, you know, when it's getting old, it can go to, it can go to the livestock and go to the pigs. And so we would do a run and we'd always do it at night because it would be, us kids coming. So we'd get like crates of, of milk and of cottage cheese and sour cream and just stuff like that. And most of that went straight towards the wives' houses and their kitchens. And like most of it didn't actually go to the livestock, at least if it was, you know, quote unquote, still edible. Mm-hmm. So is this something that was approved or did you have to sneak it off of this property? Oh, no, it was approved. Okay. It was approved. I don't know if this is like true or not. But I remember some of the other kids at the farm telling me that all they, that one time they like called up a store was like, Hey, I'm so-and-so from the health department. And I just want to let you know, we're coming in for an inspection. And the next thing they know, they get like a truckload of just like, like Val was saying, ho-hos and Twinkies and snowballs and like, just, and like licorice and just, just a bunch of like sugary snacks that are not good anymore. And it was very normal for everybody on the farm. It wasn't just those of us on the farm that was getting the food. We would, people would call families to come and pick stuff up. People would load stuff up in their trucks and in their cars and take it to church or take it to the school and be like, this is what we have available. And keep in mind, yes, most, if not everything was already expired. And if it wasn't already expired, it was about to be. Okay. So I just want to make sure I'm understanding you weren't necessarily given money from the jobs and the work that you were providing to go to the grocery store and pay for groceries? No, absolutely not. Especially because 
the grocery store that we're supposed to be going to is the order's grocery store. And we don't need cash for that because they have in their own system, they can just take it straight from our account. Or if it's already been pre-approved, then we already have kind of like a gift card that's in the business's system. Like we already have that much to go toward there. Okay. Interesting. So what about the other random day-to-day things like toilet paper or shampoo or toothpaste? For the most part, everything had to be as cheap as we can manage. I know we used, as, as a kid, we used Suave and VOA. I think that's what it's called so many times. I hated it. So it wasn't until like when I was actually making my own money, that's when I finally got to decide what kind of shampoo and conditioner I used. And basically we just, we just had what we were given and any, if we could get anything in bulk, like that was always the best idea because normally in bulk, you get it for a cheaper deal. Mm -hmm. Often we had like cases and just like a, a whole stock of like tomato sauce. Like get it by the case because going and buying one or two or three or five or six cans wasn't quite enough. We needed to get the whole 24 can case because that was going to save us money. Yeah. I think that's how many cans come in the case. So I guess I just want to reiterate to everyone watching that this level of poverty that you were forced to live under, it seemed like it was unnecessary because you were making money, you were working. And so it seemed like you're working and you give everything away and then you don't get anything in return to sustain these families, these huge families that are also an unnecessary thing. A man doesn't need 14 wives. Mm -hmm. And so that's where my frustration comes in because I'm not saying that being poor is bad or wrong. I know a lot of people struggle and that's okay. I understand that. But it seems like it's unnecessary poverty. Did you feel the same way or do you currently feel the same way? Oh, absolutely. It was a little bit more difficult to to challenge when I was younger because my mindset was more in the group and it was more clear to me that we live consecration. Yeah. We give all of our in our incomings and outgoings to the Lord. We are building up the kingdom of God. And we, re- we were well aware too that the order had several different businesses and those businesses need to make money too. And those businesses need to, to buy the things, to sell the things. To and and some of the businesses did have outside employees, not not very many, but some of them did at the time. And so we were very aware that this was to build the kingdom of God. And of course, with the whole like, as I mentioned, lack of appreciation is a major crime. We were to be grateful for the things that we do have. And even at that, like, and my mom, even though my mom's working, she she doesn't have any money for the kids because she's paying, she's paying rent. She's buying the food. She's buying the clothes. She's buying anything that the kids need for school. And like a lot of the clothes that we got, they were hand-me-downs from someone else. And I was always excited to get hand-me-downs because to me, that was new clothes. That means I get to get something new. Mm -hmm. And there were so many kids. I wouldn't, my mom tried to be very good about having her kids look presentable so that they were wearing clothes that actually fit them. But there were so many kids that we could see that they were wearing clothes that were way too big for them or way too small for them, or they had holes in. And it was just very, very normal and regular for us to, to have the lowest of what we could get. Like to, you know, I I don't want to say scum, but we were kind of treated like scum. Like you get what's left over. Yeah. If you get anything and you'd be grateful for what you do get, because there are a lot of people who have less. And I did want to clarify, too, based on what Val told us, is that 
your mom was paying rent to Daniel, even though Daniel technically or in some way owned the apartment. Yes. Daniel owned the apartment, but it wasn't in his name. And they do that connivingly so that if the state were to ever come, if the government were to ever come after him, they couldn't touch the apartment or the businesses that he quote unquote owns because it's not under his name. It's like, like a L- LLC. LLC. Yeah. I, I don't know if that's what it, like if that's how it was, but you know, kind of like, so it's, it's a business thing. So he's, he's, he's ahead of it and he owns it and he's in charge of all of that, but it doesn't have to be in his name. That way no one can come after him for it. But yes. So technically he owned the apartment that my mom was living in and she still had to pay him rent every single month. And if she got a job that, or if she got a raise or if she got a job that paid more than what the previous job paid, her rent went up. That way he could make sure that she never had anything left over. Wow. Daniel Mm -hmm. is the worst. And we already know that. But I also, because we haven't touched on it quite so much in this episode, I want to hear from your perspective how you felt about Daniel and how he treated you personally as a child. When I was really little, then... I thought he was cool because I was taught to, I was told to think he was cool. I was told like he was praised and my mom would be like, Oh, it's Daniel. We love Daniel. You're so lucky. But actually, I guess I don't forgive and forget easily. (laughs) So when I was little, like, like I mentioned that, that paternal instinct in me is very strong. I always wanted to help take care of people. I always wanted to help. I always wanted to just be like, what needs to be done? Babies need to be taken care of, whatever. So one time then um, Daniel comes out of the bathroom and he asks my mom, where are my glasses? And me being a kid who's lost things several times, I knew dang well. The first place you look is where they go. So I was like, oh, I bet they're on the nightstand right where he left them. And so I went and found him. And I came in there and I was like, yeah, I'm helping. I'm taking it. I'm being so helpful. He's going to be so happy that I brought him his glasses because he was looking for them. He wasn't. He started slapping me. He started telling me, don't you ever touch my glasses? And like, just really being, you know, an absolute monster. And I remember remember my mom being telling him, I think she was just trying to bring them to you because you asked where they were. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I didn't, I don't think I said anything because I was just a child, but I was just thinking, yep. And I also was thinking, never going to do anything for you again. Yeah. And it was after that, he had a, a dial family meeting. So it was a bunch of his wives and their kids all in one area. And so we're playing with the kids. And I remember some of my siblings being like, Daniel's my dad. Daniel's my dad. And I remember being like, what? How could he be your dad? He's my dad. And they're like, what? He's your dad? He's my dad. And I remember one of our older siblings being like, look around, guys. He's all of our dad. And I'm like mind blown. I was like, whoa, like, cause, cause I knew he was my dad, but at that time I didn't know he was a polygamist. Yeah. Like I, I knew that he was my biological father. I figured that one out all on my own. So then after that, one of the sisters, she goes and tells her mom, guess what? Chanel said, Daniel's her dad too. And so that mom tells Daniel, Chanel saying, you're her dad. Daniel comes yelling at my mom. Why does she know who I am? She's not supposed to know who I am. And then he slaps me. And I don't know if it's been made clear to you or not, but. Like if Daniel were to ever slap anybody, keep in mind, that is not a slap. That's a pat. Like for him to slap, it's front-handed, backhanded, and it's repetitive. It's repetitive. Who knows how long it goes? Sometimes it's fist as well. So like if I ever say Daniel slap me, it's not like a one swat. Like that is just, that's, that's hilarious in comparison. 
Yeah. So he's slapping me and he's telling me, don't you ever tell anybody that I'm your dad. You don't tell anybody who I am. You're not supposed to know that I'm your dad and you're not supposed to tell anybody. And I'm like thinking, I mean, I'm just a little kid, but I also remember thinking, but she said you're her dad too. Like I really, I can't even tell my own siblings. Right. That's weird. And I think that that actually has a really like, has a lot to do with why I'm very offended when people say that he's my dad. And I'm like, he's not my dad. I don't have a dad. He's Daniel. He's just Daniel. He's only ever been just Daniel. Yeah. I'm sure that was a big defining moment. Do you remember how old you were? I want to say I was like five, but I might've been four. I remember being really, really little. And I remember only having just a few siblings after that. That was the last time that Daniel actually like slapped me. But I glared at him. I was like, I was, it was very clear visually for me that I was displeased. And I was like, I don't like you. I didn't say it, but it was just very, very clear in my facial expression. Yeah. And I'm assuming that that's probably why that was the last time that he ever slapped me or like hurt me because I know he, he beat my siblings like, like it was freaking dinner, (laughs) like daily, you know, but I would talk back to him too. There were, there were several times that he would be beating on one of my siblings and I would yell at him and I'd be like, stop it. And there was another time that I didn't say anything to him, but I would just like, like, this isn't very funny, but I remember being in the moment just being shocked and thinking back, be like, well, I had no reason to be shocked. I knew dang well, that's his behavior. Like it, it wasn't shocking anymore, but it was just like having to deal with it in that moment. It's kind of like stunning, yeah. you know, like, oh my gosh, I got to deal with this. And, and I remember one time just running out of the room, going to find my mom, I'm like, mom, make him stop, make him stop. And I, I'm pretty sure that at that point he thought I was going to go f- for a, a phone and like call the police on him. I might have told him I would call the police on him by then, or it might have been after that. But I, I did tell him several times. And um, I don't know if you want to hear that, hear that situation, the story, if I should yeah. go into the actual details. Okay. Well, my mom had just had a baby like a couple months before that. But one of the wives at Washakie was pregnant. And she was about to have a baby, but she had to stay down because I don't know, they were spotting or whatever there was. She had to stay down. So my mom was like, well, it's summertime. My kids just got out of school. I don't have a job right now because I just had a baby. We can go up there. Yeah. So my mom and her, her nine kids, we went up to stay with this other wife. My mom did the cooking. She did the cleaning. And um, us kids, like we helped with some of the stuff around the farm. So I was watching my little brothers like play peekaboo. You know, the... Um, they were on one side of the TV and like kind of putting their heads out and just playing peekaboo with each other and then giggling. Mm-hmm. And so and I just remember thinking, oh, that's cute. They're not harming anybody. They're not doing anything. And suddenly Dino's like stomping down the hall and like thinking that he's like in a hurry. He's going to go walk out the door and like he has somewhere to be. He comes in, he picks up the youngest brother. I thought he was like two, but he might have been like three. Anyways, he picks up the youngest brother. His hair was a little bit longer at the time. He like picks him up by his hair and he starts slapping him. I see his feet come off of the floor. I see it. And I'm like, oh my gosh. And Dial's just slapping and he's telling him, shut up, shut up. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I don't know what to do. So I ran into the room and I was like, mom, make him stop, make him stop. And so then Daniel comes in there and he's like, what's going on? I refuse to look at him. I wouldn't talk to him. My mom's like, I, I don't know. She know what's going on. And I just wouldn't acknowledge him. And then Daniel's like, I was just disciplining him. And then I acknowledge him. Then I look him straight in the eye and I'm like, that's not discipline. That's abuse. And that was just one of the times. I, I do want to say, though, I feel like for a lot of the times that my mom wasn't able to stop Daniel or wasn't able to protect us, there were a lot of times that she did. There were a lot of times that at least she was like vocally on our side 
it, yeah. And one example I want to say is I was either five years old or six years old and Dinah was at our house. We were all up at the table for breakfast, except one of my sisters. And he was like, well, where is she? She needs to be in here eating with everybody else. Mom was like, well, she's feeling sick. And he's like, well, she needs to be in here eating with everybody else. So my mom goes and gets her. And when she comes in, Dinah's like, I have a spot for you right here, right next to me. Come sit by me. Actually, it was the other side. It was that side for me because I was on the other side of the table. <laughs> but, um, and then she's like, she's just sitting there. She's not eating. It's, and it's a bowl of oats, like raw oats with milk that he's expecting her to eat as breakfast. And he starts trying to force, force the spoon into her mouth. And she's like fighting it, holding her mouth shut and like, just like, no, I don't want to have it. And so he, he slaps her and then he forces it in her mouth. And it's a big, massive bite, like a little two, three-year-old should not be having that size of, of a bite. And so she's like, he's telling her, chew it, chew it and swallow it. And she starts like gagging on it. And she ends up like, like gagging and spitting and it got on him. So he was so pissed and he like starts slapping her some more and forcing some more. And she ends up throwing up and he's still trying to force her to eat it and while slapping her. And then she ends up with a, a bloody nose. And then I find her just like, stop it. She's sick. Then I can't remember like exactly like what he did at that point. If he started talking to me or if he started talking to my mom, but then my mom did intervene like with him. So then I was able, like I got up and I like was able to take my sister away from him and took her into the bathroom, helped her get clean shirt on, wash off her face, you know, just help clean her up and take care of her like that. But I do remember like with that situation, the only reason I was able to take care of my sister is because my mom was the middleman between, you know, like she was mm -hmm. standing between me and Dial, So Dial couldn't stop me from taking care of her. And, um, yeah. So, so obviously I ended up getting like a rocky relationship with Daniel that he, he formed all the while. My mom's still telling us we're so lucky to be a part of Daniel's family. You're so lucky to have some of your best friends being your own siblings. And I even remember my mom talking to me about like, it was, so the prejudice is very clear. Even when I was little, little, it was very, very clear. It was, it was really annoying. We'd have some cousins or their cousins just being like, you guys are bad. You guys are bad. We're Kingston. You're Hanson. We'd be like, Dial's like, we're Kingston too. Mm -hmm. But, um, so it was very, the prejudice was very, very clear. And so I remember my mom telling me, um, when I was little, mentioning that there, there are a lot of people who they act like being part of Ortel and LaDonna's family means that you're better than everybody else. But the truth is, we're expected to uphold higher standards than most people. So we need to behave better than what we see other people behaving. And so I, I really loved the way that my mom like explained that. Cause I was like, well, that makes sense. But then also made sense to why some of these other kids would be like, I'm better than you. I'm Kingston. I'm Paul's kid. Look at me. You know, mm -hmm. also Daniel, I don't think he really liked me back. I don't know. <laughs> Probably not. He didn't seem like a guy who actually likes his kids. Oh, my mom would tell us that we're so lucky to be a part of Daniel's family and she would like praise him and like really try to encourage us just loving him and like really try to make sure that her kids would fawn over him. And if he wasn't like if his behavior wasn't the way it is and the way it was, it would have worked. Like we would have fallen for it. We would have fallen for it. We would have felt like, oh, we're so lucky. Oh, he's so cool. Oh, he's such a nice guy. But the truth is he was not a nice guy. And my mom, um, Daniel would actually, he would get mad at my mom and he would, he would yell at her and ask her, why aren't your kids coming and saying bye to me after church? 
And so we started getting in trouble for not going into the, the main building after church and going to say bye to him. So there would be several times that my mom would get into the vehicle after church and say, did you guys go say bye to Daniel? I'd be like, no. She's like, hey, go say bye to Daniel. Go say bye to Daniel. And after some time, then I was just like, she's going to send me in anyway. I don't want to say bye to Daniel. I don't want to touch him. I don't want to shake his hand, have that awkward hug kiss thing that he does. I don't want to see him. I don't want to talk to him. So I was like, well, she's going to send me in to go say bye anyway. I'll just go say bye to Paul. So then I'd stand in the little line with Paul's kids and like shake his hand, give him a little hug and like, and that might be one of the reasons that Paul really just, that Paul liked me. <laughs> but so then I'd, I'd come back to the car and she'd be like, did you, did you say bye? And I'd be like, yep. In my mind, but not to Daniel. <laughs> <laughs> and so, but my, and my mom continued, um, you know, she, she continued to try to praise him for, for so long, for so many years, actually. And it, like, it was, I could, I was exhausted just listening to it, but I could see that, like, she was exhausted about it. And I remember one time, um, we had like a Daniel's family meeting. This was right before me and Val, well, Val had already been pulled out of school, but this was literally right before I was to also be pulled out as well. And, we, um, we had a Daniel family meeting, whatever afterwards, then me and Val go and get in the car and just wait for my mom. And when she gets in the car, then she, she asks us, did you say bye to Daniel? We're like, no, she says, okay, go in and say bye to Daniel. So we're like, fine, whatever. So reluctantly we go back in and we get up to him and he's got like, he's got a couple of wives around him. He's got several different kids around him. And then he starts telling us your mom's a liar your mom did this and your mom this and your mom said this and she didn't talk to me about this. Your mom's a liar. Just saying like stupid crap like that. And of course, in front of other wives, in front of other kids. And I just remember being like not wanting to even engage him at all. Mm -hmm. So we go out to, so me and Val, we get back in the car and mom pulls away. And, and then once again, she starts going off, off on how we're lucky to be a part of his family and they, this and that. And I was like, Mom, stop saying all this nice crap about Daniel. Do you know what he's saying about you behind your back? And so I start telling her some of the things that he was saying. And she just kind of like slowly after that, it, it might not have been as slowly, but like just kind of stopped trying to, to fool us because she could see we, we can see mm -hmm. we know better. And and how how is that fair for her to behind behind Daniel's back, praise him and, and make him sound like such such a sweet guy and such a blessing for all of us. Whereas with the roles reversed, he's talking crap about her and telling us that she's this horrible person and telling his other wives and kids. And actually, even after that too, actually, no, it was before that, that we were hearing from some other kids in the family that in their, in their family meeting, like not that it was a meeting, but like when he's in their home and he's talking to, to his, that wife and those kids, then he was telling his kids, don't be a wife like Shirley. She asks questions. She doesn't fit in. Like, don't be like Shirley. Don't be a wife like Shirley. So it wasn't just him saying it to us in front of other people. It was like he was literally going to his other families and talking crap about his family. Jeez. It seems like your mom had some sort of fear towards him because Clearly, she is stuck in this situation where she's being forced to praise him in a way and keep you guys happy and, and wants you guys to think of him in a certain light. Do you think that he was also abusing your mom? 
absolutely. He was abusing my mom. She says that it wasn't physically, but emotionally, mentally, spiritually, he was definitely abusing her. And one thing that my mom didn't realize is like, I overheard so much. I overheard a lot. Um, and one of the reasons that I, like, I, I overheard so many things that she, cause she didn't, she wouldn't tell us kids like what was going on. She wouldn't tell us kids what Diana was saying to her or what he was doing or how he would ignore her or disregard her or like go off on some vacation with some other wife during her birthday and like, you know, other things. She wouldn't always, she wouldn't say that to us. But, um, so me and Val grew up pretty close. We were always good friends, but I, I would also pick fights with them. Like I would just kind of tease him and pick fights with them. And I remember telling myself that the person who wants to win the most is the one who's going to win the most. It doesn't matter. I'm smaller. doesn't matter that I'm a girl. I could still win him. <laughs> I don't think I did, but <laughs> anyway, so I would pick fights with him. And then, um, some of the times, like I would actually, I would go hide under my mom's bed. And so several of those times, my mom would come in there and like get on the phone and then start talking. I'd be like, Oh my gosh, Donald said this to her. Oh my gosh, he did this. And I like, I would just kind of like start inside me just getting really, really, really angry and like protect, like defensive and protective for my mom, you know, and just being really angry. And at first, like I would start crawling out from under the bed and then my mom would be like, what are you doing in here? Don't climb under my bed. Don't climb under my bed. So then there was a couple of times that I had already been told to stop climbing under there that I just waited until mom was off the phone. So like there would be times that I was under the bed for the whole conversation, just hearing everything that she would never tell her kids. And just me being like, I don't know why she's praising him. I don't know why he thinks that he's, he's worthy of being respected. I don't know what the heck is like, why they think this is okay, but I'm sure as hell not okay with it. Yeah. And based off of some of the interviews that I've conducted in the past, it seems like that's very common in these abusive relationships where the the woman or whoever it is that's being abused is kind of blinded by some of the things that are going on and they're stuck in this cycle. And it's very common with narcissistic relationships, of course, too, where the narcissist feeds off of this other person wanting them and wanting them and they'll give them breadcrumbs of love and oh I love you so much and just enough to keep them on the yeah. hook and then they can turn around and abuse them and they still have this person who's being abused they're wanting their affection and their love and craving their love and affection so I think that's very common and I just kind of wanted to point that out as well mm -hmm. I think I was 16 or else I was just barely 17 when it was just before I was 17 when, um, like males in the group would finally start coming to talk to Daniel about taking my hand in marriage. So by the, so, but before that, I had at least two other sisters my age, younger than me actually, get married. And I remember Daniel telling me, um, nobody wants you, Chanel. Nobody wants you. You're too sassy. You're a rebel and nobody likes that behavior. Nobody wants you. And I just remember thinking, huh, I don't know how I should feel about this. Like, should I be offended? Should I be glad? Because I, for for a long time, I would go back and forth when I was little. There'd be times I'd be like, I'm not going to get married till I'm 16. And then times I'd be like, I'm not going to get married till I'm 18. And, but I never, like, there were also times I, I was like, I would accept it. I could accept it at 15 if it was the right person, it was the right situation, yada, da da da. Oh my goodness. We were at her, her reception. I just remember Dial being like, it's so nice to have her married off. Like she had just barely turned 16 two months before that. And I was just like, oh my gosh. 
no, nice to have her married off. Yeah, very clear. You're stupid. I see your words. I hear them. <laughs> Jeez. And I just want to point out, too, that this is a common thing. It's not an odd thing for someone to get married at 16. This oh, no. is very normal within the group, right? Even sometimes a little bit younger. Most girls in the group, most girls actually do get married at 16. Some of them at 17. And the ones who are getting married at 18 these days, it's typically because they're marrying a polygamist and they're, they're you know, trying to cover their tracks a little bit and be like, well, at least she's of legal age. Um, the youngest I remember hearing of anybody getting married, it was... I was really, really little. It was either right before I was born or else it was like I was really, really little. And I remember hearing about it. And I remember hearing the the age of 13. But I can't remember if the story is that they got married when they were 13 or if they were just barely 13 and then turned 14 and then got married. So I know I know that several of the the girls had gotten married at age 14 but it, like I said, I've heard they, I've heard of 13. I'm just not sure if they were able to reach their 14th birthday or not at that point. Mm-hmm. Yeah, these literal child brides who are also expected to have children as soon as possible. I'm assuming mm-hmm. that contraception is not an option. Oh, no, not at all. We're told that if you're using birth control or even condoms, we're told like birth control is murder. You're, you're killing the babies. Even, you know, there doesn't have to be conception for, for them to consider it murder. And they explain to us that there, that there are so many spirits in heaven and they're all waiting to come down. And the more that we can bring down to the order and to build up the kingdom of God, the better. The, and that they, 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 we were taught to, they want to be here. They want to be in your family. They want to be in our family. They want to be a part of the order. So we need to help them and bring them to earth and build up the kingdom of God and provide a place for them. Yeah. So as a woman, well, as a girl specifically growing up, how are you feeling about polygamy? Is that something that you were okay with or not okay with? Not exactly. I mean, frankly, given the situation we were in, I was glad Daniel wasn't there every day. I was glad that our our daily household wasn't him, mom, and the kids because, you know, of his behaviors. There was no way I wanted him to be there all the time. Mm-hmm. I, I did go back and forth every so often, like when I was younger, every so often be like, I could probably, I could probably live it. I could, I, th- I think it would be okay. And then I got to the point where I was like, I don't think I should be like, if I lived it, I think I would probably, I, I probably wouldn't be the best fit. Like I wouldn't be nice. I wouldn't like, cause I wouldn't just, um, I wouldn't accept that the first wife or whatever was like over me. I, cause if it, if it was me, I would be like, well, I'm, I'm married to the dude. You can be my equal or not. Whether d- despite of our, our age, but like, but part of, part of the practice at that time, and I don't know if they're still doing it was that, um, the first wife has senior seniority. And so it was like, and I, I remember hearing too, a couple of situations. I, I feel like my mom was talking to one of her sisters. I just, overheard the situation but i remember hearing that um my mom was being expected to tie in with the first wife and to go to her for things and 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 to listen to her not just the first wife but like and that there was that chain of command and that part of the chain of command was the first wife was had seniority or whatever and i remember hearing my mom say i didn't marry the first wife i didn't marry these other wives i married the man and so and then i got to the point um 
So actually, even with my, when I did get married, there was still part of me who, like I contemplated, could I live, could I live polygamy? Like, could I accept this? Is this something? And I always just felt like, no. I mean, given my upbringing, there was always that inside of me, like I felt guilty. And you're taught also, you're taught as a wife that if you prevent your husband from going forward on another girl, that is basically like murdering. And that is like you condemning them to hell, because if you're preventing them from going to heaven for living polygamy, you're condemning them to hell and you're going to go to hell too. And so it was always something that I had to contemplate because of course I was against it. Of course I didn't want to live that. Of course I didn't want to have my daily life look anything like the lives that I was seeing. Yeah. But there was that whole like, well, I, I want to do what God wants me to do. I, I want to go to heaven. I want to be worthy. I don't want to go. I don't want to be damned for hell. Mm-hmm. But really, no, I never wanted to live it. I never wanted to accept it. I just had conflicting moments where. I wanted to do whatever the Lord had for me to do. And if that's what it took, what would it look like? And I really had to contemplate that. Yeah. It's extreme spiritual manipulation. Oh, and that's sure. something that we try to touch on, but we haven't really gone too deep into it before, I don't think, because, you know, a lot of people in the comments, especially someone who hasn't been raised in a cult, it's really hard for them to understand, well, why did you just say no? Or if you didn't want to practice polygamy, why did you? And there's just so many factors that go into why someone does. And I think how you laid it out was so beautifully said as far as you're just a good person and you don't want to see this other person go to hell because of your mm -hmm. what they would see as jealousy. And so or selfishness. Yeah, selfishness. Wow. There, it's so multifaceted and so layered when it comes to the coercion and manipulation of these young girls. Again, remember guys, this is, mm -hmm. these are not adults. These are not consenting adults. These are children who are being manipulated into becoming plural wives. So there's a lot at play here. Yeah, I just wanna um, give this metaphor. It literally just popped into my head. I've never thought about it before. But if you think about us kids as like, um, as plants, but think about us as being climbing plants. So they're literally manipulating us to climb around this pole our whole lives. It's really, really hard to get away from it or to strip that down or to have something else. Like, anyways, I really like plants. So that, that was just one thing. Cause I have, I have climbing plants that I'll go out and I'll manipulate it. I'll be like, go over here. Mm -hmm. Now go over here. But that's kind of how like they were treating. Like we didn't, we didn't have the ability to just get up and go any route we wanted to. We kind of had to just follow what they were manipulating and where they were guiding us. Yeah. And the only way to completely change the direction of that is to take away the pole, yep. to take away the religion, to take away the foundation. Yep. And what's even scarier after that is stripped away is the plant just is like, where am I supposed to go? <laughs> and there's exactly. a then lot of free lost. fall. Yeah, it's really hard to figure out, well, am I supposed to go up? Am I supposed to go left? Am I supposed to go right? What do I fall? Where is this, this pole that they can be my foundation. Yeah. You really have no reference point when you leave these type of groups where you're like, I don't know what normal is and I don't know exactly. how to find my footing and what age are you supposed to get married at? You know, all of these questions that we start asking ourselves when we leave these high control groups. I remember my goal was to get married at 22, first kid at 24. And I was like, 
<laughs> such a rebel. I thought that I was such a rebel that I wanted to wait that long. My goodness. And also have to point out, like, if that's something that you choose to do out of your own volition, if you are in the outside world and you're like, I want to get married at 22, please, that's amazing. Good for you. I don't like when mm-hmm. these young girls and young men are manipulated into thinking that that's their only option and that something's wrong yeah. with them if they don't get married by 22 or 24 or 21 or 18 or 17. So that's why we really dig into these topics and get into the nitty gritty and the details because that's what's so important is the manipulation, not necessarily the the way people are living, but how they're being forced to live in this certain way. I remember asking, like asking questions and really trying to understand, well, what is this group? Like, what what are our beliefs? Why do we believe this? And I remember hearing that like living, living polygamy, like it's supposed to teach you um, like sacrifice and, and patience and, and faith. And I was like, where's, where's the sacrifice? And I remember, um, and self-control or something like that. And I remember most of it being like directed on the women, well, overcome jealousy and to, to love other people's kids, even though they didn't practice that. And like just certain other things. So I'm like, okay, but where's the sacrifice for the guy? Mm-hmm. And then they're being like their time with their family. They don't have the time to spend with all of their wives or all of their kids. So they have to sacrifice that time with their family. And I just remember thinking that was the one of the stupidest things I ever heard because you don't sacrifice your relationship with one child to simply take care of another child or same, you know, like a wife, if, if you're living polygamy to me, I was like, it didn't make sense to be like, I have to sacrifice my time with your family so I can go spend time with their family. That's not like that. That's their choice. That's literally the way I saw it was literally down being like, I don't want to hang out with you. I have people who would are more willing to kiss my ass than you are. Yeah, it's not fair in the slightest. But we're almost out of time, Chanel. We have so much to talk about. And I think we need to do a second episode. So I would like to leave us on a little bit of a cliffhanger here for our part two, where we are going to get into in the next episode, how you went about finding your husband in the order, how you... um we're kind of forced to or pressured to get married at such a young age. And then we're going to talk about your relationship within the order and all of the the scary, awful things that went on within that relationship that ultimately led to you wanting to escape and get out of there and not only escape, but turn around and create this TV show where you are continuing to help other people escape the order and everything that goes along with that, the behind the scenes. So before we go, I need your Linda listen moment, your sassy statement towards someone who's pissed you off as the viral video with the arguing toddler goes or inspiration for our viewers. Linda, listen, if something seems off, if it doesn't feel right, it's probably not. Inspect it. Keep your questions to yourself if you don't feel safe enough to ask them to somebody else, but ask your questions, ask them and try to figure out why something is the way it is, especially if it doesn't seem right. That's solid advice. 
I stand behind that advice. <laughs> Great, Linda, listen. <laughs> okay, so guys, <laughs> thank you so much for joining us, for watching. We're going to have a whole another episode that you're definitely going to want to tune in for. And if you want to find Chanel, you can find her on socials. We'll put all of the links in the description below. But her Instagram is at Chanel Snow. You can find her on Facebook, Facebook facebook.com slash Chanel.snow. And we will be seeing more of her. <laughs> Thank you again. It's been really great hearing your story and connecting with you. And guys, if you want to support the podcast, liking, sharing, subscribing, um, commenting, of course, words of encouragement for Chanel here today. And another big way to support is by getting some of our merch. So happy that we just released it a few weeks ago. We have, oh yeah, she's wearing one right now. I'm sorry for what I said when I was in a cult. <laughs> that's one of our favorites. Actually, that's the one that's been selling the most out of the store. We have Apostates Unite. We we even have a specific shirt from Val's Linda Listen, which, what was it? Um, Linda Listen, your goddamn unicorn. So we have a few versions of that. And Amanda has one too, <laughs> the Linda Listen, Don't Boink Your Sisters. So we got some fun stuff over there. You can find it at coltstoconsciousness.com under our merch tab. And you can also become a supporter over on Patreon if you want to do that, patreon.com slash coltstoconsciousness. And if you like this video, I will link two more down here that you can check out. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious, and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts2Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts2Consciousness at gmail.com. I preferred to stay home and watch my siblings. I remember being babysat at some of the other wives' house, several of the other wives' house, and seeing just the way a lot of them treated my siblings and how they treated us, and it was very, very clear that we were not favored. It was very, very clear that it didn't matter that we're supposed to be their kids' siblings or that we're supposed to be their husband's kids. It was, the prejudice is, it was very, very evident. I remember watching my siblings being beaten by the other moms. And I just remember thinking, even at such a young age, that I would never want to send my kids to that kind of babysitter or daycare. And that I would way rather be the one at home. So at least I know
that they're being fed. I know mm-hmm. that their diapers getting changed. I know that they're being taken care of, and I know that they're not getting beaten. Yeah. He had a, a dino family meeting, so it was a bunch of his wives and their kids all in one area, and so we're playing with the kids, and I remember some of my siblings being like, Daniel's my dad! Daniel's my dad! And I remember being like, what? How could he be your dad? He's my dad. And they're like, what? He's your dad? He's my dad. And I remember one of our older siblings being like, look around, guys. He's all of our dad. And I'm like, mind blown. I was like, whoa. Like, cause, cause I knew he was my dad, but at that time I didn't know he was a polygamist. Yeah. Like I, I knew that he was my biological father. I figured that one out all on my own. Daniel comes yelling at my mom. Why does she know who I am? She's not supposed to know who I am. Yeah. So he's slapping me and he's telling me, don't you ever tell anybody that I'm your dad. You don't tell anybody who I am. You're not supposed to know that I'm your dad and you're not supposed to tell anybody. And I'm like, but she said you're her dad too. Like I really, I can't even tell my own siblings. Right. Do you remember how old you were? I want to say I was like five. I think that that actually has a really like has a lot to do with why I'm very offended when people say that he's my dad. And I'm like, he's not my dad. I don't have a dad. He's Daniel. He's just Daniel. He's only ever been just Daniel. You're taught as a wife that if you prevent your husband from going forward on another girl, that is basically like murdering. And that is like you condemning them to hell. Because if you're preventing them from going to heaven for living polygamy, you're condemning them to hell and you're going to go to hell too. And so it was always something that I had to contemplate because of course I was against it. Of course I didn't want to live that. Of course I didn't want to have my daily life look anything like the lives I was seeing. Yeah. But there was that whole like, well, I, I want to do what God wants me to do. I, I want to go to heaven. I want to be worthy. I don't want to go. I don't want to be dead for hell. Mm-hmm.
uh, for for like the story or to the audience? To you could if you have anything that you want to add, like a cliffhanger, like wait until you hear this. Well, I feel like this is it's kind of a cliffhanger just to simply say. Um, so I. I don't know how I exactly want to say it, but so I got married in the order because I had direction to do so. Well, actually, no, not that. I got married in the order because I was pushed to do so, but I was able to choose who I married based on the direction that I had personally. I don't know. What would be a better, a better cliffhanger <laughs> or something else to say? Like, I know people will be like, what do you mean direction? You had a wet dream? <laughs> no, <laughs> not quite. How about what if you say something like, um, my dad or Daniel, sorry, Daniel claimed that nobody would want me. And so I was pushed to choose somebody and wait until you hear who it was or something like that. Well, not very long after Daniel told me that nobody would want me, people actually did start coming forward and it took me, I think about a year after that point to finally make a decision on who to marry. I don't know. Apparently, apparently the polygamists were smart enough to not want me until I was 18 years old. (laughs) 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 But... I, heck, I don't know. Um, just trying to think. I don't know, because even before... So actually, this might be one. So before I did get married in the order, I actually got engaged to a different guy. And we went... Like, I, I already said yes. Yeah, I got engaged to a different guy. And then called that one off a couple weeks later. I don't know. So a lot of people don't know about that though. A lot of people don't know that I was initially going to marry a different guy in the order. And I even said, yes, we had our meeting with Paul. And the only reason that I did not get like officially engaged and have it be spread around the order. So everybody knew about it is because my mom didn't approve. Paul did. Daniel did. Even I did. (laughs) 